NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming soon to a strip mall near you, fast food that's good for you and your waistline. As Americans become more concerned about health and less happy about getting fat, some organic entrepreneurs are setting out to change an industry. As companies like O Naturals grow, we will force McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's to come more to us. And frankly, they're, they're here. You'll see them walking through taking pictures, and we welcome them. Also, from sight to sound, how choices change and expand when one shifts from capturing nature with cameras to capturing it with microphones. It's time for the voice of the planet to be heard. It's time for the voice of nature to be heard. The sound of nature and more this week on Living on Earth, coming up right after this. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios, welcome to an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Let's face it, we're fat. Two out of every three Americans are either overweight or obese, and many say the culprit is fast food. Consumer advocate Ralph Nader calls the double cheeseburger a weapon of mass destruction. A growing number of consumers have seemingly gotten the message from the U.S. Surgeon General that the supersizing of America is a public health hazard. Still, the hamburger reigns supreme at Burger King, McDonald's, and the like. But a new breed of so-called healthy fast food restaurants is shaking up the nation's food chain. Bruce Gellerman has our story. Go to a typical fast food restaurant and you might find a poster of a colonel or a plastic clown greeting you. But visit O'Naturals and it's possible you'll be met at the door by President and Chief Executive Officer Matt McCabe. Hello. Hi. You always greet people at the door? Yeah. yeah. You know, you're only as good as your next customer and um, you can have a great idea for a restaurant but if the customer doesn't have a great experience there then they don't come back. O'Natural's idea is to create a chain of all-natural, organic, fast-casual restaurants. Right now, it's the first and only all-organic chain in the nation. Admittedly, O'Natural's is nothing more than a single sesame on a huge bun. There are only four O'Natural's. They're all in New England. McDonald's, by comparison, has 13,000 in the United States alone and serves millions of customers a day. But Mac McCabe sees those customers as naturals natural. You know, early on people would say, oh, it's a vegetarian restaurant. And it's like, no, it's a natural and organic restaurant. But when, you know, somebody drives in, they don't know this place. And they yeah. said, oh, yeah, vegan. <laughs> You're going to scare them to death. Well, I am, except it's sitting right next to a steak sandwich. That's a steak sandwich made from free-range beef. It's made with organic whole wheat flatbread baked right before your eyes. Oh, Naturals doesn't serve French fries. It serves organic heirloom roasted potatoes. There's blue cheese. There's brie. Not your typical fast food fare. Nor are Asian-style noodles or wild salmon or bison burgers. The bison are harvested on Nature Conservancy land by Native Americans. This may all sound like a throwback to the 60s, but O'Naturals is anything but a hippie fast food fantasy. This is a consumer-tested business, from vegan soup organic nuts. I think part of what we set out to do here is redefine what fast food is all about. Gary Hirschberg came up with a concept for O'Naturals. He's a legend in organic food circles. 
Hirschberg started out 20 years ago with five cows and an idea. Today, his Stonyfield Farm Company is the largest organic yogurt company in the world. Hirschberg wants to apply the same principles to create a chain of healthy fast food restaurants. I'm not going to tell you what's healthy for you, but I am going to tell you that by being organic, there is the absence of bad stuff. I can, I'm going to guarantee you that every drop of dairy in this place is made from cows who are, who are not injected with synthetic hormones. I can tell you that every bite of bread is going to be pure organic. And, and you know, a lot of people say organic isn't proven, but the reality is that it's chemicals that aren't proven. The O-Naturals concept doesn't stop with food. It includes the restaurants. This one in Acton, Massachusetts, has brown leather couches and wood chairs and tables. Hirschberg says the restaurants are environmental statements. We have all recycled materials, all the wood in the place, uh, particularly the doors and windows are taken from old uh, naval air stations, which is really uh, swords into plowshares, I guess. It's an ambitious plan, but it's not unprecedented. Healthy fast food restaurants have been tried before. In the 1980s, there was Delights. The light burger chain quickly grew to 100 units, then the company went belly up. McDonald's came out with its McLean Deluxe a few years ago. That was a locale burger. It, too, was a belly flop. So were Taco Bell's recent border light offerings. Robin Lee Allen is an editor at Nation's Restaurant News. It's a trade publication that follows the fast food industry. The biggest problem is that consumers say they want one thing and then they choose not to buy it when it's available. Um, and it's the perception, whether it's right or wrong, that if things are more healthful, quote-unquote, they do not taste as good as things that come out of the deep fryer or are laden with chocolate sauce. But Robin Lee Allen says tastes and demographics are changing. Aging boomers want more than a burger these days. They're increasingly health-conscious and their kids more sophisticated about food. It's a changing landscape with more fast-food restaurants that cater to health-conscious consumers. Here at Fresh City in Newton, Massachusetts, they're whipping up a Berry Best smoothie. That's a blend of strawberries and blueberries. I go for one with a so-called stress reducer that adds ginseng, bee pollen, and calcium to the mix. Bruce Reinstein and his brother built their first Fresh City a few years ago. Now there are 11. Like O'Naturals, Fresh City serves up wraps, sandwiches, salads, and stir-fries. It even has miso. Bruce Reinstein says the food at Fresh City is fresh, but it's not organic. You know, it's nice to have healthy foods, uh, but more importantly, it's nice to give people the options to what they want because people want to eat healthy, but a lot of people want to feel that they're eating healthy. And it's really up to them to decide what dressing they want to put on, what sauce they want to put on. Do they want sesame noodles in their wrap, or do they want a simple jasmine rice? It's, it's really their choice. But it can be difficult to choose the healthy from the potentially harmful. Fresh City does have many low-cal, low-fat offerings, but its teriyaki wrap, while fresh, has as much fat as a Big Mac and nearly twice the calories. Just because something's fresher doesn't mean it's necessarily more healthful. Again, Nation's Restaurant News Editor, Robin Lee Allen. I think what happens is people get confused between, you're talking about two different things. One side is what's more healthful, what's low fat, what's you know lower in calories, lower in sodium, lower in cholesterol, and what's fresh, what's healthy. I mean, you can have something that's fresh that's not necessarily going to be low in calories. 
Likewise, you can have something that's organic that's not necessarily low in calories. Still, public preferences are changing. Customers are telling the fast food industry that fast is no longer enough. They want their food fresh, healthy, and even organic. You can see it in the proliferation of new good-for-you chains, Healthy Bites Grill and Health Express. And you can see it in the reaction of McDonald's, Wendy's, Taco Bell, and other fast food giants. McDonald's recently started serving a new line of salads and low-fat yogurt, and it's entered a licensing agreement with Fresh City. McDonald's now runs six Fresh City outlets. What's more, McDonald's is phasing out the use of antibiotics in its meat and trans fatty acids in its fried foods. Slowly but surely, the fast food chains are changing their menus, and the nation's food chain as well. Before, it didn't matter so much what kinds of ketchup, cheese, and buns McDonald's bought from its suppliers. Now it does, according to O-Natural's Gary Hirschberg. When I look at who else, who now has launched into organic in the last few years, it's brands like Frito-Lay, Heinz, Kraft. I assure you, these folks are not coming to organic because they've suddenly had a religious experience. This is because consumers are asking for this stuff. We're all reading labels. Organics is now a $13 billion a year industry. It's almost tripled in size in the past three years. And Hirschberg says the future is just as bright. I think that there's no question that we're going to spawn a whole generation here of, of these restaurants. But as companies like O Naturals grow, we will force McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's to come more to us. And frankly, they're, they're here. You'll see them walking through, taking pictures, and we welcome them. But they may have to stand in line. The average O Naturals restaurant makes more money than the average McDonald's. If the trend continues, Hirschberg and his O Naturals chain could, one day, eat McDonald's lunch. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Gellerman. In the interest of full disclosure, one of the subjects of the healthy fast food story is the CEO of Stonyfield Farm, an underwriter of Living on Earth. Our story was independently edited by Ken Bader. Hindsight, they say, is 2020, and for critical issues such as air quality, commentator Miriam Landman hopes hindsight and foresight will win out over our typically short-sighted perspective. She brings us this wake-up call from the future. It's a typical morning in the year 2020. As I get ready for work, I climb into my full-body bubble suit. I zip it up and glance in the mirror to make sure my oxygen tank is on straight. Sound absurd? Well, we already buy bottled water, and we pay more for it than for gasoline. And on smoggy days, we reach for our inhalers. And now, some of us even duck into an oxygen spa for a 20-minute hit of pure, unadulterated air. The first time I heard of an oxygen spa, I was skimming through a magazine. There was an ad featuring a model with clear plastic tubes inserted into her nostrils. The ad was for the O2 Spa Bar, a stylish Toronto salon offering oxygen sessions for $16 a pop. The ad stated, It may sound weird at first, but think about how much smog and car exhaust you breathe into your lungs every day. Well, that certainly is something to think about. Unfortunately, instead of actually solving that problem, oxygen bars have sprung up all over the world, first in smoggy Asian cities like Tokyo, where there are also coin-operated oxygen booths on the streets, and later in Europe and North America. So when an air bar opened up in my fair city of San Francisco, I just had to go check it out. It was a long, dimly lit room that felt like a cocktail lounge. Twenty-something hipsters were lounging around on pleather couches while a DJ spun ambient techno music. 
I sidled up to the bar and perused the menu of aromatherapy oxygen blends with names like Euphoric, Release, and Relax. I ordered a dose of Release from the bartender, and I asked him if I was about to get high. I wouldn't put it that way, he said. It just makes you feel better, and it lasts longer than the feeling you'd get from drinking a beer. Soon, I was hooked up to a tank of the herbal oxygen concoction. There was a tube in my nose. I can't say I felt as glamorous as I would had I been holding a martini, and I can't say it actually did anything for me, other than inject the scent of lavender into my nasal passage. But that's not surprising, since there's no sound evidence that oxygen spa treatments are at all effective in cleaning pollutants out of our lungs. The original website for Woody Harrelson's Los Angeles Oxygen Bar declared, Up your nose with a rubber hose and join the rest of society who laughed at the idea of bottled water. It is hard to take oxygen bars seriously, but the implications are serious, as serious as a heart attack. Medical studies have found that breathing dirty air can actually trigger fatal heart attacks in people with cardiac problems. And roughly 17 million people in the U.S. alone suffer from asthma. That's three times as many as there were 20 years ago. Recently, I read a magazine blurb about a high-fashion jacket that came equipped with a smog-filtering mask attached to its hood. Jackets with breathing masks and oxygen-hawking establishments, to my mind, belong in a bleak, futuristic sci-fi world. But while we were sleeping, the future arrived. The surreal is now the real. So I can't help but wonder, what's next? Miriam Landman is a freelance writer and a green building consultant with Simon & Associates in San Francisco. Just ahead, a picture may be worth a thousand words, but sound can make you speechless. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The folks who gathered on Spindletop Hill this week back in 1901 had little idea they were about to witness the birth of the Age of Petroleum. Indeed, when oil was struck at about 10.30 in the morning, the wife of the leaseholder had to hurry him back from the barber shop in town. She was worried that the oil would stop and he would miss all the action. But Spindletop didn't stop. It gushed for years and would shoot 150 feet into the air if it wasn't capped. At the time, oil was used primarily to make kerosene and to grease wagon wheels. It would take the automobile and its thirst for gasoline to make the oil business huge. Even so, thousands of boomers inundated the small southeast Texas town of Beaumont, eager to get their share of black gold. The Spindletop oil fields produced millions of barrels per year until the salt dome that formed the hill was depleted. In the 1950s, the area was strip-mined for sulfur, and today Spindletop looks like a swampy sinkhole. But prospectors say there are still huge gas and oil reserves deep below the site, and descendants of the original leaseholders still draw oil royalty checks to this day. And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. Everything we know about the world, the smell of pine, the feel of granite, the glow of distant stars, comes to us through our senses. Photographer Guy Hand has found that favoring one sense over another can skew our perception of the world. He sent us this story from a nature sound recording workshop in the California Sierras, where he tried listening to a landscape he had up until then only looked at. We're here on time. 
It's five in the morning, and I can barely see the pine trees on the far edge of the meadow and the mountains beyond. Twenty of us stumble out of our cars, half awake, sip coffee and flick flashlights over a tangle of gear. Headphones, recorders, mics, cables. Keep your headphones on when you're recording and put them around your neck when you're not. I'm here to get advice on recording bird calls and waterfalls from the experts, but also to make a little comparison. I've switched careers, sliding slowly from photography to radio, from sight to sound. Let's meet back here at uh, 10 o'clock. When I first began fiddling with sound recording, I was struck by the similarities it shared with photography. I didn't even have to buy a new equipment bag. I just stuffed the old one with microphones instead of lenses, with digital recorders instead of cameras. Oh, I see. So that's actually a, an external way that you can um, uh, monitor the volume control. Through the darkness, I hear another thing sound recorders share with photographers, a love of techno babble. It comes out of here and, and goes into this box and lets me do the switching and the volume control. This new vocation feels familiar because sound like sight is a recordable sense. The only two of the five you can catch on tape. You're hearing this sight now? But it's different too. In the field, as soon as I put the camera away and pull on a set of headphones, the world seems to shift. With a camera around my neck, I passed this meadow by a dozen times. I was oblivious to this whirling world of willets, swallows, snipes, and wrens. I wonder what else draws people to nature's sound recording. So why are you doing this? Um, well, because it's fun, because it's music. Um, we're making music with creation with the natural world. Well, I think you really can sort of get into the moment when you're sitting with your headphone on and, and the birds are around you and you're just enveloped. The real reason I, I come out here is because it's a good excuse to go out in nature and shut up. <laughs> Shutting up is one of the things I really like about sound recording. It requires a kind of passivity, a willingness to settle in and let the world come to you. Photography, on the other hand, feels active to me, even predatory. After all, we use hunting terms to describe it. Shooting pictures, taking photographs, firing off a roll of film. Maybe that's why, when we really need to listen, we often close our eyes. My family said, well, you're going to take the cameras. But no, no, this time, I'm no cameras. I'm not going to be distracted by the visual images. I'm going to just go for the sound images. Arlen Christofferson is only the first of many here who bring up photography as a potential distraction. They say that sight too often dominates sound and in effect blinds us to all the other senses. There's so little attention put in the world of sound, even when natural history is the topic. But Paul Matzner, curator of the California Library of Natural Sounds and one of the workshop leaders, reminds me that sound can also be distracting. Many people in the large cities like New York, they wake up every morning to the huge sounds of garbage trucks out in the streets at, at five in the morning. They wake up at the same time as our ancestors would have woken up to birdsong. Paul puts a finger to his lips, then cocks his head to a bird call he can't quite identify. Uh, 
hear something? Yeah, I'm listening, yeah. It takes him a moment to shift back to our conversation. Um, I think that uh, what sound recording does and what the workshop does is it helps to give us back our ears. I know what Paul means. Just getting to this workshop required I run the auditory gauntlet of the Reno, Nevada airport with its slot machines, canned music, and crowds. But this forest of noise also made my arrival to the banks of this mountain stream that much sweeter. One of the nicest places where you'll find delicate and beautiful water sounds or where the gradient is very shallow. Jonathan Storm is trying to teach our group how to listen to the sounds of water. Or where you have occasional gradient steps like here, you have these little, these tiny little rapids with pools in between. The way he floats over this stream, ear tuned to every little ripple and rill, I can't help but catch the excitement I see in his eyes. I wonder why more people aren't hooked on the musicality of moving water. It has a really nice low frequency, some mids and highs. It has a typical water sound people will recognize, as well as a little unusual water sound that people might not recognize. As Jonathan critiques the creek, Rudy Trubit, another veteran sound recordist, tells me why he thinks a picture of a stream is easier for most of us to appreciate than the recorded sound of that same stream. If you're looking at a piece of videotape and you pause the tape, what do you see? Well, you see a still image. If you're listening to a sound recording and you pause that sound recording, you hear silence. There is no way to experience an instant in sound and spread that experience out over time in the same way that you can stare at a painting or a photograph for as long as you want. So that makes sound unique in that it's more ephemeral. That that single little bit where it's bouncing up over the rock mm-hmm. and the air underneath it, yeah, that that's, burbling. Make, that's making the burbling. Mm-hmm. That's pretty loud, though. I begin fishing this high Sierra stream with my recorder, trying to hook the perfect little burble with a dangling microphone. But after an hour or so, boredom starts to seep in, like water into my boots. I mean, who's really going to listen to my little collection of slurps and gurgles anyway? But Frank Doherty says, you never know. Every time you roll tape, you're making a historical document. Some are more important than others, but some of them are really important. (laughs) Some of them are profound. Frank is a Grammy-winning audio producer and trumpet player. He reminds me that nature sound recording can capture nothing less than the fading voices of endangered species or the quiet call of some as-yet-undiscovered wonder. This is powerful stuff. You don't trifle with this. This is important, visceral... Frank waves his arms over his head, turning his bearded face to the trees. Practicalities are only partly why he's here. How can you not be affected by this? You would have to be on Novocaine not to be, not to be affected by the sound of that brook or the sound of, of, the, of a meadowlark. Have you ever heard a meadowlark? I mean, I grew up in New York City. I never heard a meadowlark until I was 35 years old and somebody took me to Yosemite when I came to, to California. I mean, I, yeah, I know birds. I heard a pigeon. You know, I heard a robin. No, that's a bird. No. No. 
You haven't heard a bird till you've heard a meadowlark. And you, once you hear that, you never forget that. Frank thinks nature's sound recording isn't as popular as photography simply because it hasn't been around as long. Way back when Kodak brownies were snapping up every family vacation in America, an amateur recordist would have needed a trust fund or a truck to catch anything in the field with high-quality audio gear. Now, portable recording equipment is shrinking to the size and cost of a good point-and-shoot camera. Frank thinks this audio accessibility, coming at a time when so many voices in nature are fading, gives us an opportunity and an obligation to get out there and record. It's time for the voice of the planet to be heard. It's time for the voice of nature to be heard. Diane Ackerman, in her book, The Natural History of the Senses, says that 70% of human sense receptors are devoted to sight. That certainly suggests that our preference for the visual is deeply biological. But Ackerman also says our senses work best in concert, not competition. So, if this nature sound workshop gives me back my ears, it's really giving me back my sensory balance. It's firing up some forgotten circuits in my head, and that feels good. After all, the universe speaks to us across a wide field of wavelengths, and it's only through all our senses that we can truly hear what it's saying. For Living on Earth, I'm Guy Hand in the Sierra Mountains of California. Last year, we gave away a free African safari to one lucky sweepstakes winner. Now we want to give everyone else another chance. In May, a group of our listeners will join me on an eco-tour of some of Africa's great natural areas. The tour will include a special walking safari in South Africa's amazing Kruger National Park. The park's 16 ecosystems are home to over 700 different species of birds and mammals. It's a land of diversity, but Kruger is most famous for an abundance of the Big Five. Lions, leopards, rhinos, buffalo, and elephants. You'll have the rare opportunity to see all these animals up close as guides take you on day hikes and night drives. There are two ways you can join the caravan. Go to livingonearth.org to find out how you can win a trip for two. You can also reserve a space by buying a ticket right now. For details, visit our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org for another chance at the trip of a lifetime. You can hear our program anytime on our website. The address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You can reach us at comments at loe.org. Once again, comments at loe.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. You can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues and the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues and in support of the NPR President's Council and Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Geckos are lizards with the astounding ability to stick to any surface. They can cling to a glass ceiling with just a single toe. Now scientists have modeled a new tape on the gecko and produced an amazingly adhesive product. Andre Geim heads the project at the University of Manchester. Uh, Professor Geim, what makes the gecko so sticky? Their toes are covered by millions and millions of very small hairs. Each hair produces a very small, minute force. But when all those forces from millions of hairs has added up, then you get a very large stickiness, a formidable force. Tell me exactly how, how you recreated in your laboratory the gecko's ability to stick to walls. When initially, after actually a few weeks, we make this sort of hairs on a solid, rock-solid substrate, it didn't stick at all. So we have to spend a couple of years to learn how to put this tape on a flexible substrate. So to force all billions of hairs we have on our tape to work in unison collectively. Uh-huh. Uh, the problem is that any surface, however you believe it's smooth, it has bumps, it has dust on the surface. Therefore, not only uh, hairs of geckos are flexible, also their fingers, toes are flexible to attach to the whole surface at the same time. When you think in the years ahead of the gecko tape being used, how do you fantasize it might be used? For the moment, all possibilities are open. You can imagine even gecko gloves for rock climbers or window cleaners. Uh, but we have to see what would be the final material, what would be its characteristics, its cost, before deciding about any particular application. Hmm. So if I wanted to be Spider-Man, how well would your tape work for me? Uh, the Spider-Man is probably a bad reference because Spider-Man uh, is supposedly using mechanism which is based on spiders attacking uh, And this mechanism, I believe, is not scalable. You can stick only small insects using this mechanism, while Gacka use completely different mechanisms. And it's our contribution to this area that we have shown that Gacka man is a possibility. It's no longer science fiction, unlike uh, the Spider-Man, which probably remain forever in comics and in Hollywood. Andre Geim is a professor of condensed matter physics at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. Thanks for explaining your research to us. Okay, thank you very much. Coming up, the promise and perils of digging for natural gas in the Peruvian Amazon. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graber. An odd feeling in the pit of your stomach. A sense that someone is watching you. Chills down your spine. Scientists say these often inexplicable emotions might be explained by infrasound. Infrasound is extremely low-frequency sound played at levels that most human ears can't hear. 
To test the effects of infrasound on humans, a team of scientists in England used a pipe to create a 20 hertz tone. Then they reproduced the tone during a concert, mixing it in and out of the contemporary music being played on stage. Almost a quarter of the 750 people in the audience reported strange feelings during the pieces that included infrasound, such as a sensation of sorrow or fear or getting chills. Scientists don't know exactly how infrasound causes these responses. The psychologist on the team says emotional responses might occur when the brain tries to interpret low-frequency sounds. Volcanoes and earthquakes, for example, make infrasound when active. But to understand why some people have physical responses, such as feeling hot or cold sensations, the researchers have invited a physiologist to join the continuing study. It's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Long ago, in the hot, moist folds of the Amazon, a people walked and walked to keep the sun from setting. According to Peruvian writer Mario Vargas Llosa, the Machiganga Indians believed that if they stopped walking, the sun would fall from the sky. Then missionaries came with other beliefs. Soon after, settlers arrived in the Machiganga territory. Today, businessmen tell the Machiganga about a new kind of sun a source of energy below ground to be transformed into power and money. For energy companies, the vast natural gas deposits on Indian land at Camisea represent energy independence for Peru and major exports to the U.S., where demand for gas is rising. For the 10,000 Machiganga, it means change, the unknown. Now this story, part of Worlds of Difference, a series on global cultural change. It is reported by Jason Felch, Chris Raphael, and Sandy Tolan, who narrates the story. We move slowly downriver in the thin light of a crescent moon. Three of us North Americans with three Machigenga guides in a long wooden boat powered by 55 horses in the back. We edge along the eddies of a small Amazon tributary, looking to the shore for our place to land. Flashlights blink out at us like fireflies. This is the edge of the new El Dorado called Camisea. Beneath us lie trillions of cubic feet of natural gas. It's said this will light up Peru, that this nation will use its Amazon to become an energy powerhouse, and that what's left over will be turned into liquid and sent by ship to help power gas-hungry California. They say that there, under the ground, there is light that illuminates, but I've never seen it. Morning now in a Machigenga village directly above the vast deposit of gas. An old woman sits cross-legged on a wooden porch. I don't know what this gas is. Is it over there? Is it up above? Where might it be? I don't know. <laughs> Teresa Provincia Maria covers her face with her hand, smiling shyly, looking up at us from her work. She twirls a spool of cotton from her field, pulling out the single white strand to knit a traditional shirt called a kuchma. I think in the future, when I no longer exist, there will be very hard changes. Now I hear noises in the mountains. What might it be? I don't know. 
The noises and the changes come from the men who dig under the ground. Mrs. Maria knows about these men because her grandson works for them. A boat right away at Camisea, where the gas will emerge from the belly of the earth. My grandson already has another way of being. He's educated. He generates income. But me? I can't read. I don't know what money is. The reporters ask the old woman, so do you think this is a good thing, this gas project? What do I know, she asks. I have one foot in the grave. I see that the animals have run away from all the noises, but my grandson has work. Go ask him. Fifty yards away, outside his one-room shack, Mrs. Maria's grandson lies back in his hammock. It's a day off for Wilfredo Marveretti Vargas, who does maintenance for the consortium of gas companies. I'm happy with the job I have. I don't want to be lazing around the community. When I'm at home, I'm losing time. I like to work. I have something to earn, and I can buy things I need. Things like the stereo in his room, hooked up to a car battery. Things like money, which helps him court a young Machigenga woman in a village downriver. We could be equal to the settlers. They have comforts, they have light. Now that the companies are here, we need to take advantage to improve our houses, assimilate ourselves to society. Between Wilfredo Marvoretti and his grandmother, hope for progress and fear of irreversible change. Mr. Marvoretti tells us he agrees with his grandmother that the animals are fleeing the noise from the machines. All along the river now, there are fewer animals and fish to eat. And many people here remember the 1980s when gas workers first came to the area and nearly half of the tiny Nahua tribe was reportedly wiped out by epidemic disease. Wilfredo Marvoretti wonders about the price of gas. But if you follow the gas by pipeline out of the Amazon, across the frigid Andes, and down to the hazy capital of Lima, you will find officials who promise Wilfredo Marvoretti and his grandmother need not worry. We have done everything by the book, following World Bank standards in the way we treat the environment. Carlos Del Solar of Texas-based Hunt Oil, the lead company among seven that will ship liquefied Amazon gas up the Pacific toward California. You cut a tree, you have to plant another tree. And what you see is a very professional handling of the environmental and also their relations with the community, preserving their heritage, their, their customs. Royal Dutch Shell once held the Kamisea contract. Hammered by disastrous PR after oil-rich Nigeria executed the activist Ken Sarawiwa, Shell promised to make Kamisea its model rainforest project. The company promised to leave scarcely a footprint on the floor of the Amazon, but Shell pulled out a few years ago amid questions about the market for gas. People close to the project also say Peru's Fujimori administration was trying to extract bribes. Now demand is up again, both for export to the U.S. and in Peru. Officials in a new government say they'll convert Lima buses, taxis, and factories to run on cleaner natural gas. And the companies that took Shell's place say they, too, will treat the rainforest with respect and help the people modernize. 
but also giving them the opportunity to form part of the of the civilized community, you know, to integrate themselves to the um, communities by, by working, being trained, being educated. Back in the Amazon, in the Machigenga villages along the Urubamba River, many people see their choices in much the same way as Wilfredo Marveretti and his grandmother, to aspire and get on board or to remain wary and simply watch. We've come to Shima, a village of muddy paths, snaking through thatch huts, coconut palms, bananas, and a living pharmacy of plants. To the south, a yellow halo behind a hill, the gas workers' camp. In 2000, war began, and it's no longer like it was. Village elder Pedro Vicente sits in a metal folding chair. He remembers Shell and its promises of a model project, but he says these new companies are not following through. Company officials point out they've installed new drinking water taps in part of the village, and they paid $170,000 to the community as compensation for putting the pipeline through here. This hasn't pacified Pedro Vicente. We can live calmly now. The land, the trees are destroyed. There is change now, a transformation. The next morning, we can see the transformation laid bare on a hillside where the pipeline crosses. Alongside a vertical path 100 feet wide lie hundreds of mud-coated trees strewn wildly like so many toothpicks. Villagers say after the trees were cut, a landslide thundered down and buried an empty house, polluting a major source of the village drinking water. Machigenga activist Walter Katagari stands in the pounding sun, surveying the damage from above. Now the companies with their community relations people say, with the best technology, they will remediate the impact, but it doesn't work. We have seen the erosion here. We always say, they never do what they promise. Within minutes, a helicopter approaches us as we walk down from the pipeline route and onto the village soccer field. Suddenly, we realize the chopper is landing. Kids abandon their game and scatter. Everyone's hair is flying in the rotor wash. Two pipeline workers emerged to scold us. We needed written permission, plus hard hats and long sleeves, to be walking that pipeline route. Walter tells them, your people treat us like we Machigenga are just in your way. No, no, the pipeline workers say. We're here because we are concerned about your safety. They repeat, you didn't have permission to walk along the pipeline. The reporters ask the representatives, but did you have permission to land unannounced in this village? No, they admit. The workers board the chopper again and leave. Walter starts to laugh. Walter says they don't really care about security. They're worried that reporters saw the erosion and landslide. And he says the Machigenga accept cultural change. They just want a say in how it's done. Modernization, development, access to 
better life. That doesn't mean a town has to be destroyed. Culture and the modernization, they have to go together. La cultura debe estar siempre ahí y una modernización también bien organizado. The workers and their machines are here now, but soon they'll be gone. Meanwhile, the Machiganga will have had a taste of modern life. For some, the long-term worry is dependence. A company anthropologist told us the villagers see the gas operation as the big pop-up. The attitude, he says, is while the company is here, let's get what we can. The companies see payments to a village like Shima as an exchange for a right-of-way to pass through here, a sharing of natural wealth. Now it seems villagers increasingly see the money as simply compensation for damages. We move downriver from Shima across the great rapid known as the Pongo de Manique, where it's said the souls of the Machiganga go when they die, where they say it rains every time a gringo passes through here, and it did. Back in the lower Urubamba, moving again toward the source of the natural wealth, we learn that the worry over damages is growing. This was the 15th of May, 2002. The spill went all the way to Virubamba. It's all contaminated now. And there was another one on the 17th and the 20th of May and the 20th of July. A young man stands in a boat tied to the shore below his village of Chukoriari. He works for the pipeline company, one of five witnesses who told us of a total of six diesel spills from storage tanks used to run heavy equipment. All the spills reportedly ran into the Urubamba. He recounts the first spill. It was during the night. There were special sponges to suck it all up. We all suffered as well. Petroleum burns. The skin peeled off our hands. In each case, he tells us, giant black rubber bladders burst. Each contained 4,000 gallons of diesel. Now, the man tells us, there are no fish worth eating and less protein for the village. Now, another man steps forward, claiming the company told him to stay quiet after he witnessed a spill. They told me, you, as a peon, as a worker for this company, don't tell the community what's happened. But my children, my family, and the future of our community, we are all hurt by this. They say if I talk about this, they will fire me. But I don't care. Company workers on the river would not answer the reporters' questions. Via email from Lima, an official acknowledged some spills, but said they were contained. Our last stop is the headquarters for the Camisea drilling operation, a large square of gravel and trailers housing petroleum workers from around Peru and the world. There, in a gully near the bank of the Urubamba, is young Wilfredo Marveretti in his orange jumpsuit, hacking away at brush with his machete. His grandmother may not understand how light can come from under the ground. Mr. Marveretti says he doesn't either. But he does know that money comes from there, and he's working for that as fast as he can. With this money, I have bought this battery and light. With the money, I hope to make my house better 
for when I get married. With the compensation, they should make a neighborhood with houses. And once that's done, they should bring electricity. It's necessary these days. Soon, the wells will be drilled, most personnel will leave, and Wilfredo Marvaretti may not have any more work. If that happens, he says, he'll get married, grow yucca and banana, and be by his grandmother's side. I'm very close to my grandma. I cannot go somewhere else. But I couldn't live like she lived before. It's different. I am educated. I need to know how to live in a house, not like she did, in the headwaters of the rivers. For Living on Earth, with Jason Felch and Chris Raphael, this is Sandy Tolan reporting. Our story on natural gas development in the Peruvian Amazon was made possible in part with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the Rockefeller Foundation. Production assistance from Ellen Ewan. Worlds of Difference is a project of Homelands Productions. For more information, visit our website at livingonearth.org. Before we go, get your pail and buckets. It's milking time at Wingstone Farm in Manhattan, England, where these ladies were recorded as part of the Sounding Dartmoor Community Project to sonically document this region of the British Isles. Living on Earth is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Cynthia Graber, Ingrid Lobet, Diane Toomey, and Jeff Young. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Andy Farnsworth mixes the program. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earth Here. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 
10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation. This is NPR, National Public Radio.